We are back. Welcome to the most empowering show on the radio, the show that proves you don't have to settle for your life the way it is right now. You can do the things you love, face your challenges head on, and start down the path to living the life you've always wanted. Yes, it's called Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. That guy over there is Bill Schaefer. We are two inquisitive journalists who seek out the opinions and experiences of renowned celebrities, best-selling authors, and ordinary people that are living extraordinary lives. Growing Boulder on the radio, on national television, uh, Growing Boulder magazine, a website, a Facebook page, all of it doing pretty much the same thing, offering hope, inspiration, and possibility. But for you, in the next hour, oh my gosh, you're going to meet some fascinating people sharing the secrets of their success. People like the author of the book, Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Album. He's on line four and he's ready to go right now. And also standing by is the legendary musical genius, Herbie Hancock, who's now in his 70s and he is as cool as he ever was. And then you'll hear one of the final interviews ever given by Larry Hoppin of the band Orleans. And that's not it, folks. Amazing people, inspiring stories. It's time for Growing Bolder. And as most of you know, Mark and I are both former local TV sports guys. And our next guest is someone we would both see in the media room every time the Detroit Pistons would come to town and play the Orlando Magic. And who knew back then, Billy, that his reputation as a tremendous world-class sports writer would actually be eclipsed by his writings as an author. Turns out he is a gripping storyteller. His first novel, Tuesdays with Maury, became the best-selling memoir ever. And his latest has found its readers as well. It's called The First Phone Call from Heaven, written by our guest, the multi-talented Mitch Album. Hey, Mitch, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on, guys. We're thrilled to have you, and son of a gun, if you haven't done it again. Now, let's talk about the book. Uh, again, it's The First Phone Call from Heaven. It starts out with a woman getting a call from her dead mother. Uh, then others start getting calls, too. Uh, voices from heaven, they're told. And I guess the story revolves around everybody's reaction. Is it a miracle or is it some horrible hoax? That's kind of the hook right off the start, right? Yeah, you did a good job of summing it up. Uh, I think it's a question that, that people have always wondered, you know, what if I actually heard from someone who was on the other side? And, and I particularly did it through the phones because you know, this is how we're all communicating now uh, through telephones and texts and things like that. And it, it, it requires a, a sense of belief when you only hear a voice as opposed to, you know, when a ghost appears in front of you or something like that. It's kind of a different thing. And we're also connected through the voices that, that we share with one another that I thought it was a good way to set it. It's funny, Mitch, because I was going to ask you, you know, why not the high-def TV or even the washing machine? Why did they come over the phone? You know, what, did you not think about the roaming charges? Uh, yeah, or you don't want to get a collect call. But but in all seriousness, uh, you know, the, the inspiration for the book actually came through a, a phone call concept. My, my mother, who was a very funny and loquacious person, uh, and probably is where I get whatever writing talent I have because she was a great communicator. We always used to talk in the mornings. She used to give me a call, and then we would catch up, and then I'd go about my day. And uh, five years ago, she suffered a very serious stroke and lost the ability to speak. And uh, she's still alive, but she hasn't spoken a word in five years. And I can go visit her or hold her hand. Uh, I'm not sure she knows it's me. But she's still physically on Earth. But when you can't hear anybody anymore, you can't communicate with somebody anymore, it's a totally different relationship. And I've, I've often thought as I sit, even where I'm talking to you guys right now, is the same place I used to talk to her in the mornings, and if my phone rang and suddenly her voice said, hey, it's me, I'm okay now, uh, what, would, what would the conversation be? I mean, would it be you know, deep and meaningful, meaning-of-life conversation, or after five minutes would we go to, so, you know, wh where are you going to eat tonight, and how's, how's your wife, and how's the little things? And that's some of what I explore in the book, because, uh, you know, to hear someone's voice again after you've lost them is to gain them back in so many ways, even though you can't touch them or, or, or see them. It is a fascinating concept, Mitch, and I guess at its heart, it's a story about faith because it seems to be a topic, a subject that you are keenly interested in, having belief in things that can't be proven. 
Yeah, well, I think that uh, all the big things in life, all the big issues of life that we think about kind of go back to that. And, you know, it's hard to get anybody. I sometimes have heard people say, well, he always writes about death, or why are you so fascinated with death? And I always laugh at that. I say, I don't write about death. Have you ever read a a serial killer novel? You know, the the people are dying on every other page in great graphic detail of how their hearts are being ripped out and the bullet goes through their brain and all that. I don't write anything like that. I, I Usually in my books, it's like one person dies, and then the whole rest of the book is about life and, and figuring out the significance of that life. But I do find that just as most doctors will tell you they can't get their patients to start taking care of themselves until they get really sick and have a scare, and then it's like, oh, you know, have a heart attack. Okay, I guess I better stop eating six jumbo burgers for dinner. You know, Well, it's the same kind of thing in writing. Unless you're talking about sort of life and death or, or that's in the theme, it's hard to get people to focus on things like what's important in life or how should I be living my life or what should matter in my life. So I use heaven or deaths or things like that to try to get people focused on life. And that's at its essence what this book is about too. The first phone call from heaven may be about all these phone calls, but in the end the message is sort of, you know, spend time with the people while you're here. Uh, and and you'll have the kind of relationship that you you know won't necessarily need a phone call after they're gone to try to catch up on. But if all you're doing, if someone called you from the afterlife, is apologizing, I'm so sorry, I should have spent more time with you, I should have been with you more, then you probably did something wrong when they were here. And uh, that's you know the kind of example of real life messages that come from otherworldly themes. Hey, Mitch, you don't just talk the talk. We're, we're really proud to say that you walk the walk as well. Here on Growing Boulder, we talk about opportunities that are presented to people in a lifetime and what you do with the ones in front of you. And you've done an amazing job, you know, in another area, and that's philanthropy. Uh, maybe it was from a promise that you made to Maury before he died. I mean, you've done great things in your hometown of Detroit, including creating the first, what was a 24-hour clinic for homeless children? Mm-hmm. It did start with Maury and... Maury uh, asked me once, what do you do for your community? You know, what do you do for charities? And I said, I I write a check. And he said, well, anybody can write a check. You've been given a voice in your community, and you need to use it for more than just aggrandizing yourself. And, uh, you know, he had a very good way of making me feel guilty about my life. And uh, I examined it, and he was right. And so ever since then, and that was in the mid-'90s, I've slowly sort of, worked in charity and built them up and i found that i have a have an ability in that area and i I currently operate seven charities here in detroit and and one in haiti an orphanage in haiti that i go to every month and uh, i have to tell you that it is the best and most uh, enriching part of my existence it's uh, i find it almost funny when people compliment you for doing it because there's such great uh, joy that comes out of being able to actually help somebody and see things make a difference. Not just like I used to do, you know, throw money at something or here's a $100 check or here's a $500 check, but to actually get down and, 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 and open an abandoned building, like you said, was an abandoned hospital. And we took it over. We bought in volunteers. They cleaned it up. Uh, and then we opened it, and children started coming, and their mothers, and uh, you know, homeless people who didn't have any place to get medical care, and we created that, or a kitchen that we built at a veterans center, and they were eating cold cupcakes for, for food, and we built this state-of-the-art kitchen, and all of a sudden there's hot meals being served for these veterans who were coming back, or some of whom were homeless, and they're training in culinary arts to become cooks and get jobs and then uh, some of them actually went on to cook at restaurants and you do these little things and you watch people and you stay in a community long enough where you can see the beginning of the idea the middle of the idea and and the, and the result of the idea it really makes you feel like you're actually accomplishing something in life besides your own career and uh, i'm very happy to do it i don't need any thanks or or praise for it it's i something I think we all ought to do, and um, I get a great deal out of it. 
You know, Mitch, I, I, I think you just answered a, a question from earlier about what your mom would say if she could pick up the phone and call you, and I think she would tell you how proud she is of you. The book is called The First Phone Call from Heaven. It's going to be your new favorite right up there with Tuesdays with Maury and the five people you meet in heaven. What a great guy, Mitch. Thanks for doing all you're doing. You're inspiring everyone who picks up one of your books and, and, and passing a little bit along in addition to all the philanthropic efforts. That's the always compelling Mitch album. Thanks so much. Dance with me. I want to be a partner. Can't you see? Coming up, things were looking up for the lead singer of the band Orleans when he died suddenly and unexpectedly. A look at Larry's legacy is next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. This is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and that voice right there belonged to one of the kindest stars in rock. Many were devastated when suddenly and unexpectedly that voice fell silent. As the lead singer for the band Orleans, Larry Hoppin earned a lot of respect, but he was just as proud of the respect he earned from his passion for others and his desire to make a difference. Yeah, Larry was 60 years old, seemed to be on the brink of a brand new beginning. The interview you're about to hear took place shortly before his passing. You'll hear Larry reflect on his life, his career, and what he hoped might have been his future. We present this story as Larry's legacy, and you'll be pleased to discover in this interview that he was a very inspiring guy. Dance with me, I want to be a partner. This is one of the most timeless songs in music. You probably remember the band, Orleans, but do you remember the singer? Rich and famous, I mean, I'll just, you just give me the money. I don't need to be famous, you know? Larry Hoppin was one of the most talented yet anonymous legends of rock, and that was just fine with him. Because it was never about the fame, just the music. That's why he stayed at it his whole life. It's hard to explain, but I mean, it, there's, there's, enough, there's no replacement for getting on stage, performing, getting that interaction with an audience, and also just, just doing, you know, doing what, you're, what you do. <laughs> Larry knew he was fortunate. It's why he called one of his solo albums one of the lucky ones and filled it with songs that had the same timeless feel. There is nothing I can say or do Hoppin seemed pretty excited to reach a milestone in his life because he had just turned the big 6-0. How is 60? Well, I, only, I don't have anything to compare it to, but I can tell you that I'm glad that I waited to have kids. On the day before they was born, I turned 45, a middle-aged daddy with two babies just arrived. There's a trade-off. You trade off the energy of being younger for hopefully the wisdom and stability of being older. And my kids keep me young and make me old at the same time. This may also make you feel old. Orleans had its biggest hit in 1975. And still the one is still on countless radio playlists still today. That's the power of music and the connection that music has to everybody's life. And, you know, certainly the baby boomers, I mean, man, did we, was music important to us or not? You know, Disco Duck was the song that kept Still the One out of number one. Wow. Still the one was number two. But I always say, I'll take it. Because imagine if I had to play Disco Duck the rest of my life. So I got number two, 
but I get to play Still the One, and I get to play Dance With Me, and these are great songs. They're just always fun to play. I can take you where you want to go. But did you know that as much as those songs are loved, one of their albums is hated? Not for what's in it, but for what's on it. A photo of all five band members, arm in arm, shirtless. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that oh, cover, yeah. that, they've been talking about this cover for uh, 35 years now, and I'm like, what, bring it on. I don't care what you, you say about it. What were you guys thinking? Well, there's no such thing as bad <laughs> press, right? So it's going around the internet for like, 20 years now is one of the top 10 worst album covers of all time. I'm like, yes! <laughs> You're laughing about it now, Larry, but I'm, you tell me you weren't stewed for a while, were you? Uh, no, I never, it never bothered me. I'm like, I, you, you know, people say, oh, they must be gay, or, you know, what were they thinking? Or uh, We weren't thinking anything, you know? Well, why don't you guys, for the next Orleans album, why don't you recreate that cover now? All you guys in your 60s We have done that. <laughs> we have done that, but we're not going to make it a cover. <laughs> And did you notice what he said there for Orlean's next album? You see, Hoppin never stopped writing, recording, or touring right up until the day he died. Our slogan is, we're still having fun. And it's more apt than ever because it's really consistently a lot of fun. Today, when we're done, I have to fly up to the Northeast to go play the Mohegan Sun and a Berkshire Community College gig. And, you know, it's exciting because we know it's going to be really good. How great is that? 40 years after it's pretty cool. forming. As Miley Cyrus would say, it's pretty cool. Playing as well as ever? Yeah, I think so. Singing as well as ever? Yeah, my vo- you know, your voice changes over decades. And I'm having, I'm struggling with certain things, which all, I think most singers do. Uh, you know, the range thing, the top end of my range, but the bottom end's gotten better. So you're always adapting, and, and um, I'm looking to extend the the life of my voice because I should do the things I've never done like warm up <laughs> voicing and stuff like that so and it's because you take, you plan on doing this for a while till I die and that's not going to be for a while I don't think so unless I get hit by a truck you know? <laughs> <laughs> well look both ways before you cross yeah, the street exactly cause love takes time yes it's hard to no one expected or was ready for what happened next. Months after this interview, Hoppen passed away. He had just come to terms with the business side of music, and he seemed optimistic and realistic about the future. Are we going to have another Still the One? We're not going to have another Still the One, and here's why. The way that that happened it doesn't exist anymore. In 1975 and 6, radio was a different animal and it worked to create mega hits like that. Now, in order to have something with that kind of effect, you have to be like Lady Gaga, and you have to be in every print magazine, on every website, in every, you gotta be in TV everywhere, it's, you know what I mean? And that's probably not gonna happen to us. You never know, never say never. But we're realistic. So we wanna do what we like. Um, and hopefully we can just keep building the fan base. Larry Hoppin's music has stood the test of time, and we hope his legacy will do the same. In the big picture, I feel like I've had a pretty charmed life. You know, I've got a great wife, got great kids. I do what I love. I have a lot of friends. Eh, you know, I, I have a couple of people that they'd probably tell you bad stuff about me, but I don't consider them enemies. But... Um, You know, yeah, I appreciate what I have. I think you only go around once, you know. Make the most of it, hopefully. Yes, I'm going around in circles over you. Yeah, we all do only get to go around once, but Larry sure made an impact while he was here. The guy had so many friends, and he spent so much of his time and invested all of his heart in causes that he believed in. And obviously, Lee, Bill, I know you didn't expect that to be the final interview you ever did with him, but it's a great one. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't hear about those two little girls of his one of these days. Both apparently inherited their father's gift of music and his desire to use it to help others feel just a little bit better. Larry Hoppin, a wonderful guy, gone far too soon. Let the view of 
Well, as much as we've improved in so many ways over the years, I'm talking like technology, medicine, manufacturing, and on and on, there's still at least one area where we can use a little bit of help. Where are all the great leaders, the motivators, the innovators, the big-picture thinkers, and the true visionaries? Yeah, those are some pretty good questions. In truth, there are never enough leaders. So where do they come from? Are people born to lead, or do things in life conspire to create leaders? Can you learn to lead? For a few interesting thoughts on the topic, we can turn to one of our resident contributors who also happens to be an expert on leadership. Hi, I'm Pat Williams of the Orlando Magic and author of almost 70 books. I was driving down Interstate 4 in Orlando not long ago and I saw a flashing sign pop up on a billboard alongside the highway. It simply said, leadership cannot wait. And I began to think we are in a desperate need for leadership in our country and the world. All levels, I mean from the community levels right up to the international levels. So what makes up a good leader? What are those qualities? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is vision. Great leaders have the ability to see out over the horizon. They see the future before it gets here. They have a clear vision of what needs to be done. And then accompanying that, they can communicate that vision to other people. They communicate it verbally, and of course they communicate with optimism and hope, and they communicate inspiration and motivation. So as a leader, what is your vision? And are you communicating it clearly to those people that you are leading? You know, Pat Williams has written an entire series of books about great leaders to see what characteristics they might all have in common. And he found that they are all not afraid to fail. And in fact, all have failed to some degree before they found success. And most had positive encouragers around them, helping them to believe in themselves. Up next, what do you get when you take some outrageous jazz licks and mash them up with some righteous funk? The legendary Herbie Hancock is next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Oh, is that beautiful? Bill Schaefer here with Mark Middleton on Growing Boulder. Do you remember this song? Came out right smack in the middle of the MTV glory years. Think about that. The time when big hair was everywhere. Pop, power, pop was all the rage. And here comes this odd, against-the-grain instrumental by the most unlikely guy, some jazz dude who must have been some sort of a, a shaman because the tune is irresistible. Yeah, it still is all these years later. Let me tell you something about that jazz dude. He is a 14-time Grammy winner, Oscar winner, Kennedy Center honoree. Even the iconic Miles Davis called him the most influential figure in music in this era. And he's just written a book that is educating, it's motivating, it is fascinating. It's called Possibilities. I love that. Let's say hello to the one and only Mr. Herbie Hancock. Hey, Herbie, how are you? Uh, hey, Mark and Bill. Thank you very much for inviting me. Man, thanks for being you. What an honor, and, and what a book. And what we love about it, it's not just one of those, well, this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened. It's about the different experiences in your life that helped enlighten you. Can you explain, first of all, Herbie, why you chose the title Possibilities? Well, my life has been full of decision-making. You know, we all have decisions to make, but often uh, we kind of react before we actually make choices. And I've, I've, I've made choices that somehow have moved my, my life forward. And, and the book is about the kinds of choices uh, that, that I chose to make that brought me to this point t- today. And, and there's... 
even even uh, circumstances that have been painful, uh, suffering, demons in my life, I was able to win the battle over those. So, I mean, one of the hidden messages is never give up. You can win. Herbie, that's beautiful. You're preaching to the choir here because we love that message. We all have choices to make, like you said, but you know what? We all need help making the right choice. And for you, you found a lot of help turning to Buddhism. Tell us what was missing in your life that drew you to it, and what was it about Buddhism that filled it? Well, the, what actually attracted to, music, to Buddhism in the first place was, of course, music. It had to do with music because that was the thing that was uppermost in my life. Now, actually, thanks to Buddhism, I've expanded beyond that. And so what I look at includes music, but it's not just music. But at that time, I was just looking for a, a way to uh, to have more days that when I was on and when things were really clicking just in the right uh, direction musically. Uh, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. And that was an experience that I had in Seattle where the, the, thanks to the bass player who had been practicing Buddhism, uh, he played this amazing introduction to our first song that night that ignited everything, ignited everybody. And, and the band played this amazing magical set. People came to the stage, many of them were crying and saying, we didn't just hear this music, we experienced this music. And, and I brought Buster Williams, the bass player, into the dressing room, and I said, hey, listen, I heard you went to some new philosophy or something, whatever it is, if it can make you play bass like that, I want to know what it is. And he said, I've been chanting for a way to tell you about this. That was over 41 years ago, and I've been chanting ever since. Wow. And practicing Nichiren Buddhism. Folks, we are talking with the great Herbie Hancock, who was a child prodigy at the piano at the age of 11, now 63 years later. Yeah, do the math. The guy is 74. He is still getting it done. And, and Herbie, if you're going to be a jazz great like you, uh, is it, that's a lot about coloring outside the lines, about taking risk. And, and that's pretty much what your life has been about uh, from the beginning, isn't it? You're a guy that likes to take risk. Oh, yeah. That's uh, uh, kind of built into me. But I had so many great mentors that really stood for that kind of uh, ethic. Miles Davis, for example, uh, he told us that he paid us to take chances, to pay us to explore new territory and, 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 and find new ways of, of doing things, uh, which, I mean... How blessed is that to have uh, your boss say to you, I pay you to experiment. Mm. It, it's, it's, it's fantastic. So, and, and Miles himself showed through his behavior that he stood up for what he believed in. So that was another encouragement for me when uh, I decided to move in various directions throughout my my career. Uh, and Consequently, I got a lot of a lot of flack, a lot of criticism for deciding to move beyond what was expected uh, of me. And uh, uh, but thanks to Miles, and 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 later, of course, thanks to the, the support of of the Buddhist practice. I mean, that's com- completely uh, in sync with what Miles was talking about. You know, which is, you know, when I wake up in the morning. The face I have to look at in the mirror is my own. So as long as I'm true to myself, that's the most important thing. Folks, do you hear this and, guy? And it's really about the heart. It's all about the heart. And, and, and the heart that you have, you know, it, it, you hear this guy, you never would think that this is a 74-year-old because, Herb, face it, you know, when we, were, when we were kids, somebody, if you would meet somebody 74, you'd think they were absolutely ancient, but you're still rocking it in a way that really seems to make age irrelevant. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. I feel very much alive today and very encouraged by life and by uh, other great people that uh, have been in my life. 
uh, uh, Wayne Shorter, for example. Well, first, let me mention my wife, who was the rock in my life. How many years and now, secondly, Herb? I know, it's, I know it's a lot. How many years? <laughs> and I talk about that in the book, too. But uh, uh, Wayne Shorter, who is my best friend, he's a great musician. He's a great human being. He's like Yoda to me and, and, uh, because he has that kind of wisdom. Herbie, and you, by you, the way, he also practices the same Buddhism I practice. He's a Nichiren Buddhist. You, know, you, and, you and your wife, I don't want to pass this up. You, you guys have been married uh, over 40 years now, right? Yeah, and in 2018, we'll, we will have been married 50 years. And you know what? It could have been five more, too, if you wouldn't have been taking your time, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and what does it mean? I mean, having somebody like that by your side for this entire journey had to be so grounding. And I know, folks, Herbie's had obstacles to overcome like everybody. And sometimes when you're in the spotlight, those obstacles are even greater than the giant ones that most of the rest of us face in life. But, Herbie, you've come through this thing with a smile on your face. You've come through this with a contribution, a legacy to leave behind. And the best part of all is you're not even close to finished yet. Even at the age of 74, Herbie is still inspiring people, still making a difference in the world of music, still creating and still being relevant. The book is called Possibilities. It's an exploration of life and the experiences of Herbie Hancock and the things that made him one of the most compelling musicians and humans of our era. Thanks so much, Herbie. Up next, he was one of the pioneers of fitness until Lou Gehrig's disease threatened to take his life. How he and his wife are fighting back, next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble to neglect. Hi, Mark. That is Bill, and this is Growing Boulder. And it's time now for our surviving and thriving interview with the right kind of care and support and the right attitude. It is possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but in many cases to thrive in the aftermath. And Bill, our next guest certainly will attest to that. You know, she's the wife of one of the greatest fitness pioneers ever, Augie Nieto. They were high school sweethearts who married. They started a storybook life, Mark, and he ended up creating Life Fitness, one of the largest gym equipment companies in the world. But at the age of 47, it all came crashing down. Augie got the devastating news that he had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and that plunged him and his wife into a world that they knew very little about. And let's welcome Lynn Nieto to the program. How are you, Lynn? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, we're just going to continue the story here because as bad as it was, it all came to a crest when Augie tried to commit suicide. Yeah, that was about um, three months into our diagnosis. And, and uh, why, was, why was that such a turning point? I mean, I think uh, people in the audience would say, I think I understand how he felt. I, uh, you know what? And to be honest, I understood as well. I think you're, when you get a diagnosis like ALS, it's so devastating and for somebody like Augie, who is kind of like this, this larger-than-life entrepreneur, to, to kind of face the potential of, of thinking that he might be a burden on his family um, and not being the physical person that he was before, it's, it's very understandable. And, and at some point, Lynn, you, you know, you learn how to deal with it. You learn how to move forward. Uh, you, you learn to find what good you can in it. Uh, but... but Perhaps the, the cruelest cut of all early on was when Augie heard his own son say that his father was no longer his hero. Yeah, I think we were all in the throes of different emotions and trying to deal with it. And at the time, Austin was, I'm guessing he was 19 or 20. And just the, the prospect of losing his dad and then coming right out of the hospital and saying that to him. And it was just really a turning point for Augie. 
um, to win back the respect of Austin, and he's done that in spades. And one of the first things you did from that is you launched Augie's Quest to raise funds to find a cure. How did that go? Well, we originally partnered with the Muscular Dystrophy Association back close to 10 years ago now. It's actually about nine years ago. Um, we were counseled by a, a, a good friend that said, you know, look, given this, this diagnosis that you have and the probability that you won't be alive in two to five years, don't saddle your wife and family with trying to do your own foundation. So uh, Augie brokered a great deal with the Muscular Dystrophy Association, and we had a great run of about nine years with them and have recently left. And Augie's Quest is part of the ALS Therapy Development Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts now, which is where all of our funds went anyway. So we're excited to be able to do some things in a a more nimble type of way. Um, But it was that they couldn't have been better for us. We didn't know how to fundraise. They had amazing people. We actually have three of their finest on our staff uh, that went with us. So uh, it's it's an exciting time for us. Uh, give us an idea, Lynn, if you will, of the timeline. How long ago was he diagnosed? Uh, how is he today? Because the, the, the prognosis for someone diagnosed is usually not very good. No, it's not. The average lifespan with ALS uh, is two to five years. We were diagnosed this coming up March will be our 10-year um, anniversary, which is very, very unusual. Augie is a slow progressor, um, and I remember early on that, they, that the doctors said to us, the good news is you're a slow progressor, the bad news is you're a slow progressor, so you'll live in each stage a lot longer. Um, but I, Augie and I are really the lucky ones in this disease as we've had enough resources to try things and fail. Augie's currently um, in a wheelchair, has been for eight years, um, is on a ventilator, has a feeding tube. So for the outside world looking in, it looks like it's not much of a life, yet um, I just walked in a few minutes ago and he's um, on a board call right now and he's, you know, he uses his feet to control his computer, to do WebExes. So it, it wouldn't be the life that we would choose, but it's, it's more rewarding and richer than anything we could have ever have imagined. See, it's something to hear you say that, Lynn, and I think that gives hope to a lot of people because you've been a caretaker for a decade now, and, and that's a difficult, difficult role. You know, we were a little slow in having other caregivers help us. Uh, I would be ready, then Augie wouldn't be ready. So, yeah, we. but but now we have 24-7 care. I have been relegated. That's the wrong word, but I'm now his wife and not his caregiver. And uh, it's, it's something that if anybody's really struggling with and has the resources to be able to do that, I would say do it sooner than later because it's, it's hard to be both a wife and a caregiver. You know, we admire anybody that's out there fighting the fight. Uh, what a tremendous role model both you and Augie are for everybody. You know, Bill mentioned the word hope, which I think is what keeps people going when they're facing, you know, this kind of diagnosis. Is there hope out there uh, in the ALS world? Are there any new developments that, that really truly give you hope, or are you just uh, accepting and adjusting to what life is? No, there absolutely is hope. I was just out in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, at our institute um, last week, and we had um, multiple researchers coming in and kind of reviewing where we are in this landscape. And it's, I'm happy to say that now there's a focus more of living um, short term um, and just trying to get through this disease versus now there's hope about living with ALS. And I think that's so different than when we were diagnosed 10 years ago. And there's another big difference, too, and that is that Augie's Quest, this organization that they started very early on in Augie and Lynn's journey, has raised over $40 million wow. so far. So so there are funds coming in to fight this. It's a, just a horrendous disease. And, and theirs is such an incredible story on so many levels. You can learn more about it at AugiesQuest.com and understand what it takes to be a, a caregiver, how it changes your life completely when you're thrust into this world unexpectedly, and how attitude makes all the difference moving forward. Our thanks to Lynn Nieto and, and our best to Augie and Lynn as they move forward in their inspiring lives.
Up next, cancer took her husband's life, but not her desire to fight it for others. Dietitian-nutritionist Tara Guidas is next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. A mark a generation or so ago, if you would have asked somebody what they did for a living and if they would have told you nutritionist or dietitian, you would have thought, wow, how do you make a living doing that? But now we know that what we eat means everything. Maybe the most critically important thing we can uh, concern ourselves with. And our next guest is a nationally recognized expert on nutrition, fitness, and wellness. And really more important than all of that, she is one cool chick. But here's, here's her story, folks. Her life took a devastating turn when her husband was diagnosed with cancer. Helping him fight his courageous battle did give her a rare insight into what is really important in life. Always a great treat to talk to Tara Guidas. Hey, Tara, how you doing today? Hey, guys. I love being introduced as a cool chick. You are a, you are a cool chick. Uh, I think everybody knows that, but we want to make certain the few that don't understand it. You know, first of all, let, let's do talk about Stephen for just a moment, if we can, because, sure. you, you know, th- th- there's a moral here for all of us. He was a marathon runner in his 40s, great shape. But by the time he got his diagnosis, already stage four with one of the deadliest cancers of all. And, and I guess the message, among other things, is that cancer really can happen to anybody at any time. Absolutely. It does not discriminate. And so that's why we all need to be vigilant about our health and think about and listen to our bodies, you know, get those yearly checkups and listen when there's just the slightest thing that just doesn't feel right. Go and get it checked out. And, you know, maybe you can prevent something. And unfortunately, we didn't find Stevens until it was stage four. And stomach cancer is like that. It's one of the deadliest cancers because it's not found usually until stage three or stage four. And by then it's really difficult to reverse. But, um, but, you know, we, we, a lot of cancers are, are um, not necessarily curable, but treatable. And, and we're living a lot longer with cancer as well. So I think the message here is, is live that healthy lifestyle and also be diligent. And Tara, you, you guys, you, you fought like crazy. You did everything right. You tried traditional. You tried some not so traditional. As a dietitian and nutritionist, did you feel that, did you feel that science let you down? Um, I don't think science necessarily let me down. I think it's just that when you're faced with such an uphill battle, uh, when he was diagnosed, it was we are pretty much guaranteeing that he's not going to be alive a year from now or, you know, not guaranteeing, but you know, that's what they say. It's like, give us some kind of prognosis. Well, we would be surprised if he would, if he would be alive a year from now. So when you're told that, and we had a two and four year old at the time, they were three and five when he died. And, you know, when you've got little kids and you have so much to live for and a zest for life, like Stephen did, you say, you know what, I'm going to do anything. And so we did turn to some of alternative methods um, we did definitely change his nutrition up quite a bit, even though he was a fairly healthy eater. We started juicing. We started doing large doses of garlic, um, lots of supplements, you know, whatever you can do, because you never know what little piece will help to, um, you know, with the fight. We're speaking with, uh, speaking with Tara Guidas, who is a nationally respected nutritionist, among other things, also one heck of a marathon runner. Uh, Tara, we have had experts, so-called experts, on this very show uh, who tell us that you can cure cancer with diet. Uh, specifically, stop eating sugar, stop doing this. I mean, you're a nutritionist. You're someone who has had a personal cancer experience. What is your thought now uh, about cancer and diet? Well, I think every case is individual, so it's really hard to say that you can cure cancer with anything. Otherwise, we'd all be doing that, every cancer patient, and we wouldn't have cancer anymore, um, killing people on, a, on a, every second someone is dying from cancer. So um, I, I think it's irresponsible to say that you can cure cancer with anything. 
Um, we can try to delay, we can try to fight, we can try to do a lot of things. And I think diet is one of those pieces that we know that there is a lot of research showing that fruits and vegetables and the antioxidants and phytonutrients and all those things can help to kill off some of those free radicals that attack our cells. And so that's cancer preventative. Um, You know, we do know that when we stop eating sugar, or reduce the amount of sugar that can help delay the cancer progression because cancer does feed on sugar. Just like when you're getting a PET scan, what do they do? They, have, they, they inject sugar into your veins because that's what's active and that's what they can see. So sugar definitely you know, can, has been shown in lots of research studies to be an antagonist, but it's not that it causes cancer necessarily or it doesn't cause diabetes. Um, so I, you know, I definitely as a nutritionist is what I do for a living. So of course I believe in the power of diet, but I'm also responsible with how diet can be used in some of the claims that are out there. Well, and maybe Tara, part of the problem is that, oh boy, this becomes everybody's favorite subject. Once we're faced with a life threatening situation, maybe, maybe the thing to do is to get ready for whatever battles we're going to have in life now and not wait till then. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, just like when we're young, you know, what 20-year-old thinks about their cholesterol? You know? I mean, we're, we're invincible until the worst happens. And that's when, unfortunately, I do see people in my office who, you know, are severely overweight or with the, the diabetes or the, you know, they're starting to go blind or, you know, whatever. They have a major heart attack. Whatever it is, sometimes it does take that medical scare in order to, you know, shock you into, all right, I need to improve my diet. We mentioned the marathons. Uh, Stephen was a runner. You are a runner. And, and, you know, just kind of observing from the outside, Tara, it seems like you are running better than ever at this stage (laughs) of your life. I mean, you've been winning some pretty big races. Is that true? Is that observation correct? (laughs) You must be watching my Facebook feed. Um, Yeah. Now, you know what? I just turned 40, and I honestly have never felt better physically But it's not just the physical, it's the emotional, the mental, the spiritual. I mean, it's everything that I've been through, overcoming the adversity of losing the love of my life and the father of my young children and all of that, I think has made me stronger. And um, it was two years ago that I lost Stephen, and that was in 2012 when Kelly Clarkson's What Doesn't Kill You Make You Stronger song came out. And I swear that was my theme song of 2012. It's like, that's how we get our strength and that's how we become better as we age and as we get older, too. It's like, I, I hate it when people tell me that, well, I can't do that because I'm you know, older now. It's like, I mean, you can do whatever you want. It just takes that you know, mindset to do it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I am running better than I have in a long time, even compared to 10 years ago or 15 years ago, before children. I call it BC, before children <laughs> and before everything, before life got so crazy. Um, and it's just because of, of the determination and the fun, really, that I'm having in life. So, Tara, in our final 45, what do you tell people who come to you and say, how do I lose weight? How do I get my numbers better, lower my blood pressure? You know, the biggest question I ask them is why. I don't tell people right away how to do it because I want you to know why. What is your motivation around it? Why do you care? Why does it matter to you? And what are you living for? So I try to connect people to their greater purpose in life. And once they can see that, I want to be able to run around with my kids, my grandkids. I want to be around for whatever it is. Or I want to be able to climb Mount Kilimanjaro or, you know, whatever it is that you have your mind set on, that's when you're going to make the difference. And that's when you're going to turn the corner and start to push the plate away and make better choices. Folks, you see why we say she is one cool chick. She is Tara Guidas. Tara, thanks for the courage, the honesty, and the inspiration. Always great to have a chat. Well, that'll do it for now. But remember, folks, Growing Boulder doesn't stop here. In fact, it really is just the beginning. So jump on the Internet and head to growingboulder.com. Once you're there, you can subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine and order a subscription or two for yourself, your family, your friends. Anybody would love it. That's a great idea. And you know what? If you like your inspiration packaged in feature-length form, you can order our film Conquering Kilimanjaro and watch what happens when a group of cancer survivors attempts to scale one of the highest mountains in the world. Check that Head out at conqueringkilimanjaro.com and see what a difference it makes to have hope, inspiration, and possibility in your life. Growing Boulder on TV, radio, magazine, the web, and the silver screen. That's what we call Growing Boulder. 
Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Deceive me.